0: Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close! Still short. turn The yellow little There he is. He's over.
1: Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We're diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family friendly and positive. So get involved. Get involved. Get involved. Gentlemen, it is a wonderful time to be here within a rugby world. We've had so much dross and mud <laughs> flying around a rugby sphere that we get to step in as the sh- knights in shining armor and bring some positivity and goodwill into this rugby verse, which so desperately needs it. So, before I tell you, kind of tell dear listeners what we're going to be talking about, Mitch, can you take us through uh, the, our social platforms? Awesome. So we're on Instagram
0: at hashtag Pick underscore Drive underscore Rugby. We're on Twitter at the pick and drive, oh, pick underscore drive rugby. Um, and we're on Facebook at the pick and drive rugby podcast page. So please give us a like and a follow and share some of our stuff on there because we'd love to hear from
1: you. Thank you. So we just heard from Mitch, one of my co-hosts, Mitch Foster. We also have Rev here from the pick and drive rugby podcast. <laughs> I mean, from rugby <laughs> fixation. No, <laughs> you're, do- you're moonlighting. So we're slip. happy with that. Freudian, Freudian slip, slip. <laughs> right How there. are you doing, mate?
2: You had a good week? Yeah, great week. Um, Brisbane in a bit of a serious lockdown, but yeah, I mean, you know, taking it as it comes, I think we've seen how other states have handled it and, you know, we're ready to go. <laughs> so we're
0: all <laughs> sitting like here in lockdown right now. Yeah. yeah, actually, yeah, we it's all great. are. The
1: lockdown pod. Another month ahead of us, at least. How good. Now, talking about things that are how bloody good. We are going to be doing a Pick and Drive live this Thursday night at 8 p.m., previewing Bledisloe 1. So the team lists will be available by then. We are super excited to be available on Facebook and Twitter, all the regular major social platforms. So hashtag get involved, bring us your questions in the comments throughout the show, and we'll make sure we get back to you. Now this evening, we're going to be tracking through the Razzie Erasmus controversy that has erupted in rugby over the last seven or eight days. It's been pretty dramatic. It's been pretty torrid and we're going to wade through the filth, to bring you our unfettered opinions. Also, we're going to be tracking through, obviously, as a result, the British and Irish Lions' second test before we move into the disappointing results from the Olympic Sevens for both men and women before we finish off with the locker room, any questions that haven't been addressed as the show goes on. That's it. Let's go. Let's get into it. Let's move. And now
2: the biggest talking point of the week not the game, not the preview or the review of either of the games for the British and Irish Lions, but, of course, the famous video, which uh, for probably the most bizarre aspect of it was filmed via uh, Vimeo and uploaded through there. So outdated is Rassi Erasmus slash, I guess, Yako uh, Johan. Plenty to talk about, plenty to discuss, but we've got to think about what has actually happened. We've had a coach that's come out July 25th, minutes after the game, and said, congratulations, well-deserved to the Lions very humble on Twitter, Uh, and then three days later has posted a 62-minute video highlighting all the inconsistencies, uh, saying he's not blaming the refs, but then calling out by name the refs that he's blaming, and really picking fault with all the issues that happened in the first uh, match between the British and Irish Lions and the Springboks. Uh, Certainly, we have to wonder if that video would have been made if they'd won. Certainly, we have to wonder if what he did was legal. Certainly, we have to wonder about all the things that have come up with this uh, video and the result that followed. But to dive into it more, let's hear from Mitch. Uh, Mitch, what did you think about the video and really what happened as a result of that? How much did that influence what's uh, occurred this week?
0: Yeah, it was a, it's a strange time for rugby to see something like this come out. And yeah, you you, you highlighted the question perfectly. Is this actually legal? And I think to answer that, Apparently yes. So we're all sitting here thinking that you surely as a as a coach or as a director of rugby you shouldn't be able to so publicly flag off the officials of the game that's just happened. But there doesn't seem to be any fallout from it so far. World rugby hasn't said anything. Rugby Australia's come into the mix and tried to defend Nick Berry around it, but that's sort of gone pear-shaped as well. So yeah, it it, it appears that He's gotten away with it and the ultimate thing is that it did, in my opinion, influence the second game that was played this weekend and whilst I do think Ben O'Keefe did very well in in officiating this game, there was definitely some tension or apprehension going into the game and I believe there was some calls that he made that were probably because of the video directly highlighted by Rassi previously.
2: I think that was probably the biggest risk was just knowing that it's such a high stakes environment already, knowing it's a three match series. It only happens every 12 years between these two sides um, to add into the pressure of the refs did such a poor job last time. Um, let's you know see if we can fire up the pressure. You could see that the refs did make a long time to, you know, have any decision to come to an agreement. Uh, the first half itself was about 63 minutes, I think. Um, so there was just so much stopping and pausing to uh, deliberate different messages about pretty cut and dry calls, I think. Uh, And how did you find the video? Like, obviously, it's probably easier to sit through than the second test, but um, (laughs) um, what what did you make of it?
1: Uh, I, I was, I'm not sure if disgusted is the right word. I was just really disappointed. I have somewhat a naive expectation of rugby being better than this of the fact that we're meant to be people that show respect and of both fans and people that are involved in the game players respect is meant to be one of the key values and there was nothing at all respectful in the way in which the officiating body were treated by razzi erasmus after this and i don't care what people say about supposed errors that were made within the game every single game of rugby has so many contentious calls Mm. and so many 50 50 opportunities or areas where one ruck infringement gets called up but another another two or three you let go. And if you went through and did a microscopic analysis of every single game, sure, you could easily create an hour long video. But the truth of it is you're meant to just let it ride and you're meant to just play the whistle both before and after the game. And coaches have the avenues that they can go and speak to referees and get clarification on decisions after the game. I don't see why a 62 minute video needs to be posted online if it was not with ulterior motives in mind rather than just trying to gain some type of redress on poor decision-making throughout the game.
2: I think that seems to be the big thing is just, he's been coaching for you know years now. He's been very familiar with the processes of refs don't give you an answer straight away because they themselves have to review it. Um, JP Doyle, the referee in uh, Europe has even said in the last few days that you know it can take up to five hours of just rewatching and just picking apart uh, the matches on a Sunday just to see, uh, what's happened before they can get back to coaches. So, so I think there's definitely a massive, you know, block there. Um, my big concern is, uh, Ian, Roger got in touch and said, it was last week's saga good or bad for the game. If we look at it, they lost by five points. He releases the video. It's the same venue, same teams, roughly only a few changes. And they then win by 18 points. So,
0: and the same officiating team,
2: same officiating team. And the big thing is without any uh, repercussions for Russy yet, um, how can you say it's bad? He's just got away with, um, you know, th- this massive storm in a teacup, but there's been no um, repercussion other than his side winning. So it, it's a massive benefit of him. Then now I guess challenges, will there be any sort of uh, repercussion and how much does this affect the next game? So Mitch, do you think that there should be some repercussion for Rossi? Like he's not the head coach technically. So he's using all these loopholes, but should there be something in place so that uh, people in this position can't get away with, uh you know this type of treatment
0: yeah definitely i've been wrestling with this in my head for the last few days since the video came out first of all i mentioned on the pod last week that i it doesn't sit right with me that the director of rugby should be allowed to run water first of all considering he was their head coach two years ago in 2019 took them to the final of the world cup if it was an independent person who is essentially there as a, an official sort of like Scott Johnson, then I would imagine it'd be a different situation. But the fact is that he's the coach of the team. He was the previous coach of the team before they've elected this new coach. Uh, he shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the, the the match. He shouldn't be allowed on the sideline at all. Um, and then the fact that he is in this position of power and he's gone and made this such public addressal to the referees, um, throwing in a really bad way and a really bad light. I, I personally think that World Rugby needs to intervene. And to me, I think he should be asked to stand down. Huge call.
2: Yeah, I um, I like it, and that, that gives us plenty to unpack because I, I think there's been so many things throughout the week and leading up to this that have been discussed. So the start of it, I guess, is Warren Gatland complaining about there being a South African TMO, um, which again sucks. But I think we have got to realise with COVID, that's just a reality now, and that that might happen because that happened with us with the um, the Tri Nations last year. You know, you are going to get cases like that where things mm-hmm. don't quite work out. Yeah. Um, I don't mind him as the water boy just because technically there's nothing wrong with it. Um, they're lucky they've kept the head coach on. It's not that common that you know the head coach stands
0: down but stays so involved in the team. Um, can you imagine, though, in our situation, can you imagine if Michael Checker was now the director of rugby <laughs> and was running water? <laughs> The biggest the city, issue I had with this, and in the game specifically, the try that they were, I think it was Am that scored that try, and they're looking yep. back and forth whether he's grounded it or he's knocked it on. They have the the camera angles on Ben and the official, official team talking through and trying to figure it out, and right behind them, like two metres, is Rassi. He's mm-hmm. right in the middle of that decision. So he's no he's not just letting the game flow, and he's not letting Sia Khaleesi as his captain manage that situation he's in there himself so he's almost like he doesn't allow he doesn't have faith in his team as the Springboks to be able to win this series without somehow doing something to put the spotlight on himself and taking it into his own hands that's how it feels and that's how it looks to an outsider
2: it, it definitely is a unique situation I, I think the scenario i keep trying to relate it to is as if um you know you 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 know you start dating a girl um <laughs> And this is this girl happens to be uh, you know, a lovely person as a spring box, and you're Jacques Ninaba, and you're, you know, living happily with this girl. And then she keeps hanging out with her ex-boyfriend, Russi. <laughs> and um, she says it's fine. She says it's platonic, there's nothing going on. He's just helping, it, you know, you know, chores, whatever. Um, and if you're in the position where you trust that and you think, oh yeah, that, that seems fine. Um, you know, power too. But clearly there is something going on behind the scenes. There is some sort of uh it seems like there's nearly a fear of letting go because even in the post-match interview, uh, Makazoli, Mapimpi, when he's thanking people, he first thanks coach Rassi and says, coach Rassi, then thanks coach uh, Jacques. He even has them ordered from, you know, that, that preference. Like there is that really big disconnect. And I think that's the, I guess, problem a lot of fans are having and a lot of people that aren't South African is that uh, we haven't seen this happen before because normally the head coach leaves and doesn't, you know, get demoted. He doesn't take a job that's beneath the head coach role. Um, I, I'm going to stick pretty steadfast with it. I kind of I kind of like that he's getting away with it. I think the video's the big crossing of the line, but if he's, you know, heavy water boy, then I just think the Springboks are in a really lucky position. And I'm probably more jealous than annoyed at the situation. Um, And just before we move on to the actual game itself, are there any more takeaways for you about how this whole situation's been handled? How Rassi's, you know, acting as a water boy and as a curia of chaos. Yeah. Still director of
1: rugby. <laughs> Look, I, I personally don't care about the water boy stuff. Um, I know that a lot of nations and teams around the world do that, where they have a coach or assistant coach who is the water boy, whatever, I don't care. Um, the thing that is the issue is that it's blatantly in breach of, that his actions, particularly through the video, are blatantly in breach of a number of code of conduct rules mm-hmm. and um expectations so nelson dale from draft rugby put this up on twitter um they shall accept and observe the authority and decisions of match officials and all other dis- rugby disciplinary bodies shall not publish or cause to be published criticism of the manner in which a match official handed a match there's absolutely handled a match there's absolutely no denying that that video in unequivocally criticized the manner in which a match official handled the match cannot be defended you can say oh it's just trying to get world rugby to sort out the system that refereeing is a joke that south africans always get hard done by but the nature of that video is without a shadow of a doubt going against the code of conduct expectations for how referees and match officials are meant to be treated both privately and in the media as well mm-hmm. And so I really liked the fact that Rugby Australia came out and kind of had Nick Berry's back within this, and uh, put out the they put out the announcement and said that um let me let me get the quote you mean
0: Rugby Australia
1: yeah did I say that what you said World Rugby sorry I was just going to say we haven't heard anything from World Rugby (laughs) no we haven't so it's Rugby Australia yeah they came out and um, said that. Uh, It's important to assure public attacks that his nature are not tolerated. We'll continue to provide support to Nick at this time, as both his physical and mental well-being remains a priority for us. And what I actually saw during the game was just, as Rev mentioned before, an unnecessary slowing down of it because of the need to check everything and make sure that everything was... um, all the, all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted and everything like that in terms of a number of the major calls during the game. And I felt like Ben O'Keefe was communicating far more clearly and mm. eloquently and um, with so much more detail than he probably needed to than I've ever seen him do, do it yeah. before, at least within a 2021 season. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, I don't agree with the video whatsoever. And I think it actually brought the game into disrepute massively. And I, I, I'm i not sure if he should be sacked, but I, what I will say is there needs to be some type of consequence from World Rugby for his behaviour and for the denigration of the match officials in the game itself.
0: Well, I, I personally, and going back to that that theme of him needing to stand down, I think this is the first time we've seen something like this in this format. That a ref has, a coach or an official from a team has so publicly and intentionally criticised a referee's performance to go to the point of actually naming names and even insinuating in the ref in the in his video that the referee was actually being um, disrespectful to one captain over another or um, even potentially racist. There was a few sort of racial in, innuendos thrown into the video as well. I think world rugby needs to make an example of this. And they need to come down hard on Rassi and say, This is not acceptable in our game. This is not acceptable at your position. You're the director of rugby for South Africa. You're not just the director of rugby for the Springboks, but all of South Africa. You can't be doing this. You're bringing the whole game into disrepute. You're making this Lions series about yourself. Because if they do nothing, it really goes, it just allows other coaches to do something similar or much worse. And for the fans out there that are saying, um, that Warren Gatlin's doing as bad by making little comments in the media. I don't agree. I don't agree at all. I don't think it's even on the same level. We've always no. seen little things thrown out in press conferences in big games and big series, just you know, trying to keep the, pap- the papers um, moving and turning over, um, building the hype for the game, just making little comments. But coming out and making a video like this is a completely different thing, and we really need to stamp it out of our game.
2: Yeah, it's funny because I think one of the big parallels that got drawn immediately after was people saying, "Oh, gee, the Aussies are jumping in with um, the defensive Nick Berry." Where were they when Checker was, you know, abusing referees in twenty nineteen at the World Cup? Nobody liked it. Exactly. Yeah, no one liked
1: it. He made a the comment
0: difference. in a press mat in a press conference. Yeah. I think
2: that was a big difference. It was you know ten minutes after the match where he's you know heated his team's loss. He thinks he's aggrieved, so he says something. That's very different to a you know premeditated um, you know video. Four days video. after the fact. That yeah, that goes specifically naming players and uh, naming the specific referees. So I think there is a massive difference there. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I think because of the um, intensity of this competition, what we'll see is World well, Rugby probably make a statement after the series. I can't imagine they'll want to do something um, before the third test. And I think that's probably a good idea because South Africa are the kind of team that uh, really sort of build momentum when the chips are down. I think they yeah, really benefit from... It. Yeah, it'd be a real chip on the shoulder that they'd use to their advantage. And I think that's what happened with the video this week. So I think just keep it, um, you know, as close to level playing field as possible for this week and then deal with it after the fact. Um, Because, yeah, at the moment I see any intervention as being beneficial to the box, not detrimental. But we should probably use that to segue to the uh, second test because we actually did have some rugby after the um, (laughs) documentary. We actually played
0: rugby this week. We actually
2: played rugby (laughs) So, um, you know, let's dive right in. I, I feel like we're, we're already warmed up. The juices are flowing after yeah, the grassy chat. Yeah. Go, um, go, go The string box came back uh, beautifully from the first loss. They won 27 to nine. It wasn't even really close. Um, 21, jeez, an- uh, I'm stumbling over that. <laughs> Unanswered points in the second half. Um, and the big thing from that, I think, was just we saw two teams that were kicking the leather off it, but one team started using the kicks to attack and the other team just couldn't get any, sort of momentum in that uh, second half. So again, we've got the game of two halves, neither team have put together a complete performance. And I think this third test will come down to who can actually do that. Um, so there's plenty of stuff. Let's just get a feel for the game. Um, and what were your takeaways from the match?
1: Um, my takeaways were that South Africa just simply cleaned up the things they needed to from game one. So what, what were the major things they needed to improve on in game one? Well, they needed to avoid giving away so many needless penalties, and they needed to do better in, in the um, receipt of high, high balls. And they did that. They weren't perfect by any stretch. They still had a couple of drop balls and a few issues here and there, um, particularly if you look at Jason and Colby's yellow card. Um, but by and large, they were the winners of the aerial uh, kicking game. And they, as a result, were able to profit off it off the boot of Andre Pollard. And that was really it because these teams are so well set up defensively that they don't have any major areas that they can be exploiting, uh, the, the opposition can be exploiting. And so they're forced to go for this up and under game style, which is incredibly boring to watch <laughs> when it's two games in a row. Like, I don't mind if it's a tactic for one match to, or even a half um, to try and unlock it for that one game. But when it's two games in a row that drag on for so long, it was incredibly frustrating. But I think by and large, I, you see, when you were actually talking before about um, Razzie's video maybe making a difference uh, in the referee's uh, perception of the way that they ran the game. Yeah. yeah, I actually kind of disagreed in that. I mean, look, it may have, but I actually thought that Springboks just won the game because they eliminated errors and were better under the high ball. And they did those two basic things, put the pressure back onto the lines, and and that's how they won, not through any major referee interpretation errors.
2: Well, with the interpretations, I guess this is the point that I can talk to you about, Mitch, is we saw probably three calls that have, I guess four, that have come up as being somewhat contentious. So the two yellow cards, obviously, people arguing on both sides whether they should both be reds. Mm -hmm. Um, The odd and somehow hilarious um, accusation of Hog biting uh, Vili LaRue, which was just a bit odd. And then (laughs) I I think the one that could be potentially the most impactful to the game was... Um, The on-field decision of try for AMs try, and then when slowing it down, potentially being a knock-on, but because of the wording, uh, it was awarded. So I guess we might cover those as just the bigger talking points first. Um, Mitch, were you happy with those two being yellows? Did you want to see harsher punishment for uh, the
0: the kick of the player and
2: then the tackle in the air?
0: Look, I'm I'm happy that they're both yellow. I think the right decision was eventually made. I do have questions around Ben O'Keefe's... process and the way that he handled the framework and it's something that we've spoken about with New Zealand referees particularly throughout sort of 2021 super rugby trans tasman those kinds of those two tournaments is that they don't actually start at the red cold red card threshold and work down so he was talking about the incident and he said straight away without even looking at the replay I'm sitting at yellow card can you just let's have a look at it in slow time so at that point he's already at that yellow card uh, level and he's if there's any mitigating factors, he's mitigating down from there. He really probably should have started a red card um, and mitigated down to a yellow. Now, ultimately, they did make the right decision, I believe. Um, there is some question around the words and the what he actually said. He, he mentioned that, um, I believe it was Connor Murray, was it, that was the player that got tackled in the air? Yeah. Yeah, so they, they were saying that he landed on his side and his back um, but if you watch it in replay, he actually face plants and lands on his face. So I don't quite understand how they said that he landed safely from that. Um, but at the same time, I, do, I don't I do think that there was intent there by um, Cheslin to actually hurt the player or to tackle him. He had his eyes for the ball. It was only sort of at the last minute that he realized that the player had jumped and was out of it. And he did as best as he could pull out of it. He just ended up making contact in the air. So I wouldn't have liked to have seen a red card because it would have resulted in the the game being completely different from that point on, but um, yeah, I do think that the way that they, that they, particularly the the Kiwi referees start their framework at yellow and work down instead of starting at red, doesn't give them a whole lot of wiggle room. And
2: I think because for me the two yellow cards, the Colby one was probably more leaning towards the red. Yep. Yeah, I think we've got to keep in mind with Ben O'Keefe that. He's just come off the back of giving Betty a red card yeah. in the fourth minute of a test
1: match.
2: <laughs> he's just seen the Rassi video. He knows that any red card offense, especially after he's just given a yellow, um, you know, the other an way.
0: intentional foul play act of yeah. kicking it, a player, yeah.
2: Exactly. I think it was just such a tough call to try and make. So I, do, I, I think it was a yellow in the end, but I agree with you that I think he was just wrong in saying that he landed on his back yep. or side. Like it was at best chest. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I well, agree with that. Sort of- and
0: then it also comes down to, in that instance, it would come down to the outcome. Because if he hadn't put his foot down or his arm, down, or his, his hand down to brace the fall, he would have landed on his face and he probably would have been off for a HIA or a neck mm-hmm. injury. And in that instance, they would have had no, no option but to give him a red card because of the way he landed. Now, that is outcome-based, but... Um, that's kind of what they have to do to protect players. There is clear contact in the air. If he does hurt himself through the process of landing dangerously, um, they, they're kind of in in the framework. It does take into account the fact that the player has landed dangerously as well.
2: And that's been, I guess, one of those buzzwords, the, the mitigating factors. I think they really do have to nail down. Um, is it down to intent? Is it down to outcome? Is it down to just let's have a set uh, in stone rule so that there's no gray area? Um, but it, I, I think you're right. I think those two yellows were fair. And To be fair, I think Ben O'Keefe had a great game. Mm. Um, I think he managed yeah. the team well. I think yep. it was hard because both teams were really trying to pull punches that first half. It was a real sort of arm wrestle. So I might go through some of the or stats. Or you could and say them. they
0: were willing to throw punches. Yeah. The first half <laughs> was very <laughs> fiery. They wanted to. Oh, they yeah. wanted to, didn't they?
2: I think my highlight of the match was just seeing Evan Ed, Smith and Elman Jones grabbing each other's shirt collars. And I thought for sure you know, Elliman Jones, he's experienced and everything, but you know, I don't think he'd last ten seconds in a fight against Evan, but he he stood his <laughs> ground. It was it was impressive to watch. Well he started
0: um, that first one, didn't he? He ran in from yeah, near the, yeah, he did. under yeah. the, the posts and and uh and pushed it. Was it um Mipimpe, I think it was on the ground and it just yeah. erupted from there.
2: It was good to see that sort of venom. I think the first half, even though it was much slower, I actually probably enjoyed it a bit more. There was something, you know, I'm going to borrow from Squidge and say one for the purest, but it was something <laughs> quite nice about it. But just looking at the stats, because we said game of two halves before, the first half, the Lions um, sort of had the, the dominance. They were winning 9-6. They um, They'd conceded three less penalties. They had the same number of turnovers, but they had a uh, probably slightly stronger set piece. It wasn't dominant. It was just cleaner. Um, the box had already lost two of their lineouts. But in the second half, the box got eight from eight lineouts and the Lions had two from four. So they, they completely switched the tides there. And I think the use of Ludiaga was just so inspired yeah. to bring him on yeah. um, in place of Jasper Visa. And that way they could have those two locks, but also Mostert playing as that blindside um, Peter scepter toit role. Uh, and then the other thing, and this this stood out the most, in the second half, the Lions uh, were rewarded one penalty, conceded nine. So the massive turnaround there, they had no you know, territorial possession because of that, they kept giving away the ball. Uh, and on top of that, two turnovers conceded to the box, 10 for the Lions. Um, the outside backs knocked it on 10 times in contact off high balls. Like yep. that's that's higher than I've seen in any game ever, let alone, you know, the best players from Europe. So, and I guess with those stats in mind, did you see the
1: Lions loss? Was it down more so to the personnel or the strategy? Um, I think it's actually the strategy. Well, you know what? Annoyingly, it's a combination of both. Yeah. Um, because if you look at the Lions players, who are they? They, The, the back three. You've got Hogg, um, der Merva, and Watson are, are the back three. And those are incredibly aggressive, powerful, capable players who are fantastic in attack. And have we seen them run with any space whatsoever in the last two games? I, I can't think of any run that they've made that's been... Um, at all penetrating. And a large part of that is because the the Lions barely holding on to possession. We saw it a little bit in the second half of the first game. Um, but even then, they were keeping the ball a little bit tighter than what we might see in other matches. And so I think that it's a case of the strategy that they have is... One, to try and combat the South African power game and just play territory and take the penalties and just exploit the occasional opportunity which will come up. But they're just not creating anything themselves and they're not providing opportunity for their more attacking minded players to actually have any type of um, any type of space or opportunity to do anything. So I'm just yeah. not sure if... The players are right for what they're choosing, the, the way in which they're trying to play. Um, you saw that they you saw that the confidence was down within the second half, taking the high balls, um, with so many of them being dropped. And that's kind of speaking to what I was saying before about how I actually just think that the Springboks proper just won this game, and that Razzi's video was somewhat immaterial in the actual outcome. Yeah, because
2: I think you've nailed it. There's so many players in there that we expect to attack, but that's not what the game plan has. So i think gatlin this week it's tough like now being in this corner you don't want to make wholesale changes but he does need to decide if i keep these wings i need to start using them in attack or if i'm going to stick to this game plan of kicking it up let's get liam williams in there let's get josh adams in there like players that are Mm -hmm. taller better in the air and suit that game style but it has been brought up a bit that it's really hard to beat the box at their own game plan they're probably better off to try and attack and do something a bit different um but just to highlight some of the other key stats, like no player on either side made more than twenty-five meters. Like that's that's the least running I've seen in a game yeah. in a long time. Normally you get at least one line break, a bit of Corabetti magic or something. But nothing. <laughs> there was no this Corabetti one. this game. No, no Corabetti. Every game should have America Corabetti in it. Yeah. I think just as a, a, a as, as a, a yeah, just as our foundation, just start from there and build up. Yeah. Um, I think the other ones that just really struggle the front rows. Um, this is Springboks sort of strongest area, the tight five. And last week we saw it have not really much um, contribution to the game. Um, They were pretty solid in the first half, but the Lions turned it around this week. The Lions props conceded seven penalties. That's so many. That's more than the string box as a whole, pretty much. Um, The string box props conceded zero, you know, just, and they weren't all scrum penalties, the majority were, but, um, you know, it's just such a big difference there. And then we think they bring on Malcolm Marks, one of the best hookers in the world, we well, not we, the Lions bring on Ken Owens. Um didn't make a single lineup.
1: Like yep. it, it was crazy. The yeah. the damage that um that Nakanye was able to inflict upon the opposition front row was just crazy. I didn't even know that he'd been a tight head all season and had only just swapped across to yeah. loose head for the series, which is just insane in and of itself. Um I was super unimpressed with it's Rory Sutherland, right? Rory? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He um he started the first game, wasn't particularly great there, a few dodgy line-out throws, comes into this match, one of his first involvements is to just go in the side at a mall yeah, yeah. and give away a soft penalty and then got dominated in the next two scrums. Yeah. And Carl Sinclair was just in all sorts in the scrums. Like, he's a good player, um, but he could not handle the pressure that was coming through to him, could not stay straight and resist the force of, um. who was on the close side? I can't remember who the sprint, who is Vincent Cock. Yeah. Vincent Cock. So yeah, that was just crazy to see that those two really good players, particularly Carl Sinclair, who's a notable scrummager, just being absolutely folded and Mm -hmm. turned inside. And the scrum dominance of the South Africans in the second game was almost in a way like a writing of the ship. It's how it should have been in game one, but we didn't see that play out. Um mm-hmm. so Rev, you know a bit more about the South African front rows. Do you think they got the combinations right this week?
2: I think they probably nailed it, to be honest. Like uh Trevor Nierkani, they would have done very little, I guess, um, planning around him because they probably thought um, you know, you know, they're moving him from tight to loose. This is our benefit, but he made his name for the for the Bulls as a loose head prop. Um he started coming up through the ranks as a really great scrumger there. He's got got a big body. Um, massive tongue as well as we saw from yeah, his uh, post-scrum celebrations <laughs> he was getting that out. but no I, I think they made the right choice and if i can use a uh, hopefully we've got some film buffs listening <laughs> in but I, i'd compare it to um the fight scene in um uh, what's that quentin tarantino movie um which which one the most recent <laughs> one about the hollywood um I suppose i've completely blanked oh, um, on um
0: once upon a time in hollywood
2: once upon a time in hollywood thank you um it reminded me of that fight between um, Cliff Booth and Bruce Lee where you just see the first fight, uh, they do best of three, In the first one, you sort of pull your punches, just see how the other one moves, um, get a feel for it. You get knocked down, that's fine. Second one, because they've won doing that same thing, uh, you just capitalize completely on that. And I think the box didn't throw the first match, but they lost that. And the Lions, obviously, were going to think, oh, well, it worked the first time, let's do it again. Whereas the box had all week to think, oh, actually, here's how we're going to defend it. And also, if that's how they're going to play, here's how we're going to attack against them. Yep. And I think just that combination, it really blew out what was a tight first half and a tight you know, first game into a really dominant win. So there's plenty of soul searching for this line, seemed, because they uh, really, like, I know it's one all, but they just got you know, battered. So they've got to really come
1: back um, swinging this week. I'm just trying to figure out, what did they do that was different this week? to last week. Was there any difference within their game plan or within the style? Because I wasn't able to see it. It looked remarkably similar, but just less effectively executed.
2: I think that was a big thing was just last week, everything sort of went their way. I think when you've got that luck, um, when the ref maybe is giving a few more 50-50 calls, you feel that confidence. You can use that a little bit more. This week, they were backs up against the wall and we saw last um, test match, they were down at half time, They came out firing, scored a try within three minutes. Um, they had all the momentum, and this week the opposite happened. They were up. Uh, the box score a try within I think four minutes, yep. and they just was shell shocked. They're like, "Oh wait, we know how this goes. We did this last week," um, and everything. They knew they were playing catch-up rugby. They just couldn't get a thing together. So, I mean, I, I don't really know how you how you fix that because it was just down to you know errors. I think there must have been nine knock-ons between the backs. Um, you know, they were the chasing the contestable kicks and. I just haven't seen the backs do anything in attack. Like Henshaw should be doing a bit more. Like he should be a damaging runner. Doing Venom over one run for one meter. Like that's, it's nothing when you've got such a big body there. So I don't think they need to change too much of the team. I think they just got to change the the game plan.
1: I 100% agree with that. I think that uh, if you look back to that try you were talking about in the 44th minute, basically there's a, um, there's kind of like Kick pass from Pollard across to Mapimpi, which is based off a of scrum. Um, then there's a penalty. Uh, then they go up and under. Actually, get the ball back, stretch, throw it wide right, then throw it back left, and are able to Am's able to get through some weak shoulders and score the try there. And it just shows that. It's that immediate execution or that immediate pressure that's placed when a turnover is made. That neither seem neither team really has been trying to go for this series. And that was an opportunity where they actually played with the ball after forcing a turnover and got the results from it. I just wish that there were there were both teams were willing to risk a little bit more because both games have been really dire. I um, I found it a bit of a chore to watch through the second half of the game. I yeah, watched I ended the first up half. skipping it through it.
0: Yeah, like, I watched the first the half the straight away. And-,
1: and then um, second half, I had to wait until my youngest was asleep in the middle of the day. And it took me like well over an hour to watch 40 minutes of rugby because it was so damn slow. Mm-hmm. It was frustrating.
2: We should probably change tact then and start discussing a slightly quicker breed of the game. So how about we wrap up the test chat there yep. um, and we get into our, our last bit. We'll talk about our seven teams and how they fared. Well, actually, the before we get
0: on, I'll get both of your thoughts on the third game. How, how do you... Brief, brief, yeah. Yeah, like I just want to say, what are
1: your predictions for the third game? Um, I think South Africa will still win. I think the best chance the Lions had was to... Um, win the first two games. I don't think that they will be able to get the tiebreaker um, because I think that they'll need to make a either make some strategic or tactical tactical or personnel changes, um, whereas South Africa won't need to do the same. Um, they're better at the style of play that they're trying to execute than the Lions are. So I believe that the Lions will need to be chasing the game. We'll need to make some changes. That'll take away the cohesion. There we go. I've said it for this episode. (laughs) Um, And it will ultimately lead into the hands of the Springboks. That's my prediction. Remember the Lions
0: did come back last year, the last series against New Zealand. They lost the first test. They won the second test and they drew the third.
1: Yeah.
2: I still think Box. Uh, they show that they're the better side so far. Um, Lions just did nothing in attack. They need to be able to find something there. Yep. The benefit to them is they don't have the drive of, um, you know, woe is me? We were hard done by. Um, that was a massive motivator for the Box mm. last week. So if the Lions are going to come back, they need to start strong. Um, it's been pointed out ad nauseum, but the team they're naming, they're not naming a bench that is going to score a heap of points. You're going to control the game really well. So. If the Lions can get, you know, maybe a ten-point lead somewhere around the fifty-minute mark, maybe they'll be good. But I think the Box, they're a smart team. They know what works. They've seen what works, so they'll they'll hammer home. I expect them to probably get a, another win, not as dominant, but a, probably I'll say five-point win.
1: Cool. All right, let's go into the sevens. Let's go. All
0: right. So now we're going to talk through some Olympic sevens. So for those who didn't get to see much of this, I'm referring to you, Ando, um, (laughs) the Olympics are currently underway and Australia has played both the men's and women's sevens tournament this week. Australia came away seventh, ranked seventh in the men's and ranked fifth in the women's. It probably wasn't a result, particularly in the women's that we were expecting or Um, we were coming in, the women's particularly were coming into this tournament as the gold medal champions from the last Olympics. So there was a lot of pressure around them and a lot of expectation. I'll throw it to you first, Rev. What were your overall takeaways from this tournament?
2: I think the tough thing for both these teams is just balancing expectation and outcome. Uh, I think for the men, disappointed they didn't get some more wins. Um, they made it hard for themselves by losing two uh, pool matches. I think 29, 19 to Argentina and 24, 22 to New Zealand or something like that. Yep. Um, and that just meant they had to face uh, Fiji in the quarterfinals, which is always going to be tough against, you know, the eventual gold medalists. Um, so I think it's, it's unfortunate that they did that. But again, them finishing seventh, they're not, I didn't expect them to get a medal anyway. So I think it, it's not the end of the world for the men. I didn't have high expectations. Mm-hmm. I think for the women, it probably is uh, slightly more disappointing. They they finished fifth, as you said, but they really should have been a, a medal option. Um, I think New Zealand had gold wrapped up as they entered, but they really should have been fighting for either the silver or the bronze. So a little disappointing for them, but I mean, they came away with four wins. Um, They only lost to two teams. And to be fair, the Americans were faster, the Fijians were bigger. So I think they are somewhat easy things to work on for a pretty young uh, women's side. So there is plenty of positives for them, but I mean, it's always going to be disappointing when there's a uh, medal on offer and we don't get it.
0: And Ando, you haven't seen a lot of the results or the games, but do you think it it was a a poor tactical decision not to include Elia Green in the women's team?
1: Well, from a layman's view, I would be like, yeah, she's a superstar. Why haven't you included her? But people who I read and who I've been reading and following and who are more engaged and have their finger on the pulse of rugby sevens have pointed out that she hasn't had the same impact that she had prior to injury and that, um, not really convinced that her inclusion would have really changed the narrative or the outcome of the series. So, part of me wants her to be there because I like her from what I've seen in the interviews that she's done, and her highlights reel really is incredible. Um, but the people that I trust who are more so the experts and I am about this have indicated that it probably wouldn't have made a massive difference.
0: Yeah, and I think with the women's team particularly, a lot of their games came down to the conversions that they ended up missing. So it was two or three points that ended up um, not being able to get the victory, and that's what then ultimately uh, meant that they didn't get out of the, well, they didn't get through um, the quarterfinals. So I think we'll talk a little bit about the men's and just the overall um, competition there. Were you surprised, Rev, that Fiji ended up taking out the whole tournament and getting the gold?
2: No, not at all. I think that was. Um... You know, if I was a betting man, the first thing I'd look at with the sevens is uh, the Fiji men to win it and the New Zealand women to win it. I think they both came in as favorites and um, they're both great grand finals. Um, but the Fiji guys got, they're so impressive. They're just built for the sport. They're so fast. They're so big. They can run around you. They can run through you. Um, they really do have the skills that fits this game perfectly. So I thought, you know, they did a great job. I thought, Probably the best team to watch was Argentina. Yeah, um, that's what I was about to say. They, they just look so exciting. From the first match, I thought, oh, gee, Australia must be really poor. Like, you know, losing to Argentina, that's not ideal. But we saw them push every team they played. Um, they were so good to watch. So I, I think they're a real dark horse. And um, I know Paul Tate on Twitter is um, pretty big into South American rugby. And he's said a few of them are looking quite likely for um, Argentinian call-ups for the 15 side team. So I'm quite keen to see that in effect. Um, but yeah, I, I just think the Australian side, as, as tough as this to come seventh, we looked at that team. There's so many sort of late call-ins and you know players that haven't been established, seventh players um, or you know necessarily starters. So I think it's probably about as expected for what we could do there. And I think there were some good teams. Like it was always going to be tough to finish in the top four. So I, I think... We've got to be pretty happy with where we ended up.
0: And I think one of the, the highlights of this tournament, particularly these games, was there's it only takes one or two things to be off in individual games for the whole game to go against you. And so for the Australians, particularly in that Argentina game, they struggled with the kickoffs and the kick receipts when every time they got the ball, they ended up knocking it on or turning it over. So they ultimately ended up paying, playing that game with like 10% possession or something. And every time that they got the ball, they ended up turning it over and Argentina got a penalty against them. One thing about sevens is you have to be well-rounded in all the skills and it's really important that all of your players are rounded in those skills. Um, One of the things that I've read online, particularly about this Argentinian team, was that Argentina shut down their sevens program a few years ago and so they didn't have a full uh, build-up to this tournament and they kind of threw this team together from a few sevens players, a few fifteens players but they ended up coming in and doing so well and getting the bronze medal in this competition. When you compare that to the Australian setup, we've got professional players who are playing sevens solely for years, like four years from the last Olympics through to this one. We've got players like um, Longbottom, uh, Lewis Holland, who are solely sevens players. Should we be expecting that they perform a little bit better um, when you compare it to a team like Argentina who didn't have the preparation and the build-up, but ultimately came away with the bronze? We
2: probably should be expecting a bit more just because as you said, like we've got the resources we've got probably, you know, one of the best um, sets of equipment and stadium to prepare at, And, you know, the, the coaching access compared to a lot of the nations that do compete at um, the Olympics. I do think um, the tough thing for some of these guys, we saw Simon Kirby was one of the players who's obviously just come from rugby, but even Lewis Holland and um, Lachlan Anderson, they were both in the rebel squad and they had to change their physiques, you know, not, drastically but they did have to put on a bit more bulk to play 15s and i think just chopping and changing between that even though it's great for their development it didn't really help them throughout the series we saw that they didn't have the the smoothest transitions the other thing like players like um uh, dylan peach and uh, uh Dietrich roach um both great players but quite young they're still you know finding their feet mm-hmm. and I, I think between them and the women's team which you know the women's team i'd, I'd love to go through some of the the emerging talent there. Like they're, they're just, they're so young. So you take away a few players, not a great result, but I can see why um, there's faith in this side to try and build it up and get prepared for the next Olympics. And, and, and not even that, but just the upcoming circuits that, you know, happen throughout the years.
0: I'm going to throw to some questions now um, that have come in from some of our fans. I've just lost them on my page though. Uh, <laughs> the first one comes to us from, uh, yeah, we'll go to the revs question first. So, Sevens question: Is a dramatic change needed in the Australian program? Uh, and I'll throw this to you first. Based on, I know you haven't got you haven't seen a lot of the performance, but based on the results.
1: Oh look, I think that the whole sevens program's just been hugely disrupted because of the COVID shutdown. So I'm not sure if this year is representative of um, the the f- effectiveness of the program itself.
0: Kind of I know.
1: Yeah. Look, I know that um. <laughs> Matt Doan is asking a lot of questions about whether or not uh, Rugby Sevens is worth the financial investment that's put into it. And I personally think that it's it's a fantastic showcase and offering um, from a kind of world circuit point of view. But I really struggle with the news that both the um, men and women's coaches have both been had their contracts extended i mean surely this is a four-year cycle and that you've just finished the end of your cycle and that nobody should be accepting the places that we finished so finishing what for the men it was seventh and for the women it was fifth. fifth. yeah i don't think that um particularly the seventh um should be something that we're accepting and that coaches should be rewarded by having their contracts renewed i i'm not sure if a massive overhaul needs to be made Um, but I think that the women's game particularly is growing through opportunities like the Aon sevens, um, and the emphasis on university engagement that it brings. And hopefully that being a pathway into a more professional setup. Um, so that's my somewhat uninformed view of it, but I hope, hope, hopefully those points made a bit of sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, and rev another question that came through from Ian Rogers says, uh, there's an, there's a rumor going around that RA wants to defund the sevens program. What's your opinion on that?
2: I think defunding it would be quite detrimental to the number of kids that get into sevens just as a bit of a gateway. I know we don't see that many transition, but it's such a fun game. And given you know rugby is struggling for that you know fun entertainment value compared to AFL and NRL, I don't see why we'd take the eggs out of the sevens basket when that is attracting quite a few people, especially um, we've seen the female demographic has really boosted um, in the last five years. So I don't think that's the best call. I think if they were to take money out of it, they need to have um, good evidence as to why. They need to be pretty open and transparent with you know what they're going to do with the money. And if it is for something that you know benefits the grassroots rugby or benefits you know, the Wallabies in terms of creating an NRC competition or some uh, different gateway for students to get involved in rugby at state schools or something like that, then you could see benefit. But if it's just cutting money so that you know they can fly to more um, you know it's meetings, they're going to have, top up. Yeah, exactly. Like we're just having you know business class flights to New Zealand to discuss something that could have been done over the phone. So yeah, yeah it's all that sort of stuff that yes. I think. Yeah. if if there's money that needs to be put elsewhere and they've got ideas for that and they've you know proven through their books that um, the money they're spending in sevens isn't reaping a reward, then defund it by all means. Uh, but at the moment, I, I look at that women's side that finished fifth. That, as you said, only had two losses by two points. Um, Faith Nathan, Matty Ashby, Tia Hines, Soraya Parkey, uh, Madison Levi, um, Alicia Liafu, Faka oscilia all under 21. Like that's a huge momentum build. I can see why they'd keep the coach um, if they can keep that squad together. But for me, defunding it is a big slap in the face of these players who aren't at their peak yet. Yeah. Um, there needs to be a reason why they the it, where it's going to go to, otherwise, I think it's just a, you know, an overreaction to not great results.
0: Yeah, and I guess on a similar uh, theme of defunding and and where sort of seven sits, I'll ask you this one, Andrew. And this comes to us from Hugh Hugh ninety six. He asks, what does Rugby AU need to do to to improve Seven's performance overall, and where should Seven's rate in Rugby Australia's priorities?
1: Um, I think it. Oh, you know what? That's a that final part is so hard because in some ways 7s is almost an entirely different sport. Um the the skill sets required for the players and the conditioning required for them is so so different to the 15 person game. And I there's so few players that can actually make the transition effectively back and forth now that I'm not sure that I just don't know where to place them because if you go what? You've got the Wallabies and the Wallaroos, and then you've got Super Rugby, Super W. You have the club competitions, which I know RA doesn't directly sponsor, but potential um, second tier as well if they try and get it off the ground. I'm not sure where to place seventh in that. It kind of it's kind of like that auxiliary mode or auxiliary um thing where it just sits alongside other things whilst not being a pipeline or a part of the actual system itself so i don't really have a direct answer to that because it's hard to know where rugby sevens actually sits within the frame of um, australian rugby itself
0: well i mean there is the world series so in a a normal year the world series is running uh, six to seven months a year so they're actually uh, they are competing consistently and we host it We're one of the hosting nations that that has it in Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it sort of sits at the moment. Um, So there is a competition there and RA doesn't necessarily have to do something to create games for the players, but they probably do need to do a little bit more to facilitate the growth of the players and and, um, make them more competitive.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Well, why don't we um finish this seventh chat here because we we need to keep on moving. And we do have our... two last quick questions. I'll just oh, Okay, let's two. go super quick, yeah, so, super quick. Um,
0: <laughs> last one from Hugh says, should there be more of a connection between 7s and 15s which ties directly into uh, a question from I'm just going to bring it back up on my screen. Sorry, I've lost it. Um... Uh, question from Ryan Murphy who says, would rugby 10s be a better option for Olympics? Thinking ahead to when circuit is back up and running makes it special for Olympics, but would also be an easier transition for super rugby players to join in.
1: Yeah, that later point may well be true. Um, I don't think it's particularly... Um, I don't think it'll change. I think rugby sevens is too invested and there's too much money around it now. So that's that's um, realistically just going to be it. And uh, what was the second part? Was it going to... I've, I've forgotten the second part of what that Should question Should rugby 10s be a better option for the Olympics? <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't think so. Just because it doesn't have the global um, buy-in that rugby 7s has at this point in time. Fair enough. Yep, cool. And was there a second question we need to finish up with? Well, that, those were both questions. One from you uh, around the connection
0: between 7s right. and 15s and then Brian's yep. question.
1: Awesome. Well, let's rock and roll, mate. I think we can move on and we're going to head now to the locker room. Let's go. Okay, nice and super simple. We're hitting the locker room now. We've actually already integrated a bunch of your listener questions where you got involved in the pod and let us know what you want us to chat about but we do have one here from tim foster who is a top fan according to the facebook post so we'll let me uh I'll, I'll i'll throw this question to you Andy, because he specifically <laughs> said it. it's
0: for you yep okay so special question for mr anderson with quaid back in the side should the wallabies kick ryan Lonigan out of the squad and bring in will genya as will and
1: quaid have played so much rugby together uh, no hells to the no don't you dare touch my boy ryan okay don't long as. you dare long as long as now basically he um if there was any chance that quade cooper was actually going to play then okay maybe i'd entertain the thought for like 30 seconds or chat about it over a beer with somebody <laughs> um but no <laughs> just no uh they neither of them are the future and as much as we um can sometimes chase immediate success i don't think when we're at this point of our world cup cycle we should be doing such retrospective measures like bringing someone like Will Genia back in or having quade cooper actually start um although maybe on thursday i'll be eating my words because quade cooper will be starting who knows (laughs) there's a bout of food poisoning that's gone through the wallaby squad and quade cooper is starting and it's only targeted, it's only targeted the five halves. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> okay. So now Red Roberts has put in a question. Um, Obviously we've spoken to one earlier about the sevens, but also as a follow-up, who was the Waratah's highest scoring prop before Harry Johnson Holmes? Now I did respond to this when he posted it because I've been finding it really difficult to find like a, um, some tables, some awesome. statistical yeah. information without me having to dive through one by one and uh, trying to remember props. My big fear with this is that prior to the professional era, there's just some outlier, some smoky, some guy who I've never heard of that has just scored a ridiculous amount of tries um, as a prop. But Mitch, we we somewhat have an answer. And do you want to tease the audience? So, am I giving our answer? Or no, 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 no. No, you're not giving the answer yet because we, we need some more intro, don't we? Yeah, we do. We do need to figure it out if we're
0: right or not. Um, his nickname, well, this might be a bit too early. Oh, no, used. that's way too easy. <laughs> he so, retired? Yep. For, I'm going to say five years ago, but I don't know yeah, if okay. that's correct either.
1: It's pretty close, but basically close. Um, the the reason why we're holding off is we just want to be 100% sure with our numbers. We want to make sure that we have the accurate statistical numbers for you, but we're pretty sure we've got And to get two.
0: those numbers, Ando is going to go back and watch every game on stand <laughs> from the Waratahs last 10 to 15 years and
1: statistically count them. You know what? I'm genuinely confident that if we're just looking at the... Um, the professional era then we don't have a problem like i said my my issue is if there's some amateur sorry not some amateur some pre-professional um who has just blown the chart like yeah the, but the surely they wouldn't have the played water.
0: as many games so it wouldn't i know it wouldn't I matter
1: think. i would I you wouldn't know. think you wouldn't think I wouldn't think so anyway keep your ears peeled for that one Keep your ears peeled. How do you peel an ear? Who knows? We'll find out next week, and we we'll look forward to revealing that with you. Uh, awesome. Anything else we want to quickly touch on, mate, or are we 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 good to go? Well, let's just um, let's just remind people where they can find us at eight o'clock on Thursday. Brilliant. So eight o'clock on Thursday, we are doing a pick and drive live, and it's going to be a preview of the Bledisloe Cup game one, which is going to be played on Saturday late afternoon, evening, and we will be going through the team lists and also keep your eyes out. uh, I think we're going to put out on Wednesday, our combined 23. So Rev, Mitch and I are going to get together and put together our combined 23. And you get to tell us how wrong we are or yep. how right we are. And then we'll compare it to the real thing when it comes out on Thursday.
0: That's right. And uh, Ryan Lonigan can't be in your team, Andy.
1: Well, look, I'll put him forward and then we'll discuss it. Like I don't it. think it he's in the squad, bit. is he? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, I
0: don't know. Oh, no, I think he is. I think he made it,
1: actually, from Good memory. News. Okay. So. <laughs> All right, team, let's call it there. Thank you so much if you got to this point. Have a wonderful day and we will see you on Thursday night. Signing off. See ya, bye.